0: Transfiguration Sunday comes around every year at this time since it's the Bridge Sunday between the season of Epiphany and the season of Lent, which begins this coming week. Comes around every year at this time, and given the name Transfiguration, it is not surprising to us that it always features a story of Jesus being transfigured on the mountaintop, changed from his normal human appearance into a bright and dazzling supernatural figure. Along with the Jesus Transfiguration story from one of the Gospels, the lectionary each year on this Sunday also features a selection from the Hebrew scriptures, of course. That selection is sometimes this morning's story about Elijah and Elisha, and sometimes it's a story of Moses, on the mountaintop with God. And in one case, on the third year of the three-year cycle, lectionary cycle, the story is about how Moses' actual face was changed, transfigured, by being in the presence of God. This morning's Elijah and Elisha story, while not featuring a change quite like the change that Moses experiences, is an interesting change story nevertheless. It could be read as quite literally a passing of the mantle story with the master, or we might use the word mentor, coming to that point in the shared journey with his student where the student now has to take ownership and responsibility of the work that is ahead, but the student is not quite sure he is ready. The master, Elijah, keeps telling the student, Elisha, that he is to stay behind while Elijah goes on and Elisha keeps refusing. Each time Elijah heads to the next place, Elisha comes along. So they go to Gilgal and from there they go to Bethel and from there to Jericho and from there to the Jordan River, finally crossing over the Jordan. And then After having crossed the Jordan, it is time for the parting. And suddenly, a heaven-sent chariot of fire and horses of fire appear, and Elijah is taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. It is a wondrous and overwhelming supernatural moment. Elisha is amazed, and he is grief-stricken. This person this mentor that he's counted on the most is gone taken away in fire and wind it all changes right before his very eyes you remember the old spiritual swing low sweet chariot right swing low sweet chariot coming for to carry me home I looked over Jordan and what did I see coming for to carry me home a band of angels coming after me coming for to carry me home. That song sounds notes of weary comfort. God is coming to take us home. The melody is rhythmic and haunting. But the truth of the context of that spiritual is that for those slaves who sang that song, the homecoming, as it were, was anything but comforting At least in any easy way. That transition was hard. They sang of release from this world because this world was so brutal and horrific for them. And in the Elijah-Elisha story, the world is difficult too. The crossing over is anything but slow and steady. It's a whirlwind moment. It's a transforming, a transfiguring moment. We might say that in that moment, Elijah is still Elijah, but he's not the same Elijah anymore. And Elisha is still Elisha, but he's not the same. They have both changed, the world has changed. Elijah and Moses, the other figure I mentioned earlier who had his own moment of transfiguration in the biblical narrative, both show up in this morning's gospel story alongside Jesus. This time, the student role is played not by Elisha, but by Peter. Where it is Elijah who is insistent and persistent in the story from 2 Kings, in this story, it is Peter who presses his case. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It is as if practical Peter wants to normalize a not-so-normal moment. He and the other two disciples are on top of the mountain with Jesus. Jesus has been transfigured. He's surrounded by this dazzling light, white light, and then later covered with a cloud. Jesus is joined by those two other transfigured figures, And Peter wants to pitch tents. That's what he says in verse 5 anyway. But verse 6 takes the story in an interesting direction. At least Mark's version. It says, he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Isn't that such a human thing to do, what Peter does? You don't know what to say. So you blurt something out. You're so scared that you say the first thing that occurs to your mind. May not be a good plan, but at least you have something to offer in the moment. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. It's a reminder, at the very least, that that which is dazzling, that which is changed before our eyes, that which is brighter than bright and unexpected and heretofore unknown and eye-popping, The stuff of whirlwinds and bright lights isn't just something you slide on past. It tests you. It tests your grip on what is your normal reality. So it stands to reason that that which is transfiguring is also terrifying. No wonder Peter doesn't know what to say. No wonder he blurts out the first thing that comes to mind. When we typically talk about change, we smile a bit and say that we don't mind change. We will deal with it. And usually we're thinking about a little bit of change. a Little bit here, a little bit there. Things that we will need to do a little bit differently. But if we talk about transfiguration, where the very shape and appearance of reality is transformed, it's another matter. And that's what's happening is what's happening here. Reality is transformed. Now, scripturally speaking, what does that mean? What did Jesus transfiguration mean? Was it some sort of divine magic trick, glory as attention grabber? No, the presence of Elijah and Moses, with Jesus there on the mountaintop, would suggest that this was a moment, an event, when Jesus was brought into company with the other great prophets. That he was there to fulfill what they began. If that's true, then transfiguration was not just a light show. It was a moment of prophetic intersection, of transformative confirmation, that is the seemingly unreal, or at least the surreal, shows up here in the scripture story to confirm a new reality. In that sense, it is an attention-grabbing moment. Jesus becomes dazzling and bright because in his presence, there is a new dazzling and bright reality that God is bringing forth. The heavenly voice confirms it. This is my son, the beloved, listen to him. What exactly is the new reality? It's a dazzling new way of being, a new and better way of being human, as well as living into the image of God. Jesus, shining with God's glory, cloaked with God's approval, launches a new way. This then is a moment that says, prepare to be dazzled, Not just by a bright figure on the mountaintop, but by a new and brighter vision for humanity. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Prepare to be dazzled. This isn't just one bright moment. It's a crossing over to a new vision for humanity. This is my son. Listen to him. Jesus brings a new and brighter vision for humankind. What is it? One way to describe it is to call it the way of grace. New awareness and new access to the transformative power of love and forgiveness. Another way to speak of it is to simply say that when we do unto others as we would have them do unto us, everything changes. Or we could talk about how God loves us, unconditionally loves us. And how such love draws out of us a positive and life-giving cycle of loving God in return, along with loving neighbor and even loving our enemies. However you want to describe it, this dazzling new reality has the potential and the power to change us. Not just superficially, not just externally, but to change us from the inside out. This past week, I have received the daily emails I subscribe to from priest and teacher Richard Rohr, and I've been caught up in his messages about what he calls the stories that don't work until he finally comes to one that does. He references a book by Brian McLaren and Gareth Higgins called The Seventh Story, Us, Them, and the End of Violence. In the book, McLaren and Higgins tell a fable about the people, humankind, that is, who choose false story after false story until they finally come to the real story, the story that does work. So there's seven stories. Of the seven stories, the first story is the domination story, that to be happy is to rule over others, to dominate others. But when that happens, those who are ruled over don't like it. So there's a second story, the story of overthrow that is taking up. That's a story of revolution. But that too is unsatisfying because it just oppresses other people. So some want out of the cycle and see withdrawal as the answer, the story of isolation. And withdrawal of course creates distance that inevitably leads to judgment and a fourth narrative form, the story of purification. Purification may satisfy our need to view ourselves as better than others, but it does not fulfill our yearnings to be full and satisfied. And so there's another story, a fifth story, the story of accumulation, which comes about when people try to convince themselves that they deserve things and having more things will make them happy. But when everyone is oriented toward acquisition, not everyone can have everything. So the sixth story is the story of how others get things but we don't. Story of victimization. After outlining all of those normal stories according to the world, but unsatisfying stories, which McLaren and Higgins tell in fable form, Rohr says this. Then, something new. A poet came to town, a storyteller who knew that the domination story, the revolution story, the isolation story, the purification story, the accumulation story, and the victimization story were all destined to fail. They were destined to fail because they invited every human being who is already interdependent with every other human being and even with the earth itself to pretend instead that we are in a competition. The poet had a radical idea, the seed of a seventh story that will heal the world. In the seventh story, the story of reconciliation, we still get to win, just not at anybody else's expense. In the seventh story, the story of reconciliation, Human beings are not the protagonists of the world. Love is. Yes, what a radical idea. What a radically transformative idea. What a dazzling idea. That at our core, we don't need to be in competition. That our interdependence is our true identity. That there really is such a thing as win win Or maybe even win, 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 win. That we are not the protagonists in the human story. That is, that we are not the main characters in the human story, even our own human story. Rather, love is. Love is the protagonist. Love is the main character. Now, that might not sound like a radical idea to you, but it is radical. It is radical because to view the world through a lens of win-win, to remove ourselves as the main characters in the human story, to shift from a commitment to competition to an acceptance of interdependence, to follow and trust a pathway of reconciliation is something that is shocking to this world. It is shocking. But I would even say it is dazzling. It could be a change that rather than diminishing humankind, diminishing our control, our power, our safety, instead releases us. Releases us to wonder, to healing, to connection. You are quite aware that I'm in the process of moving houses, selling one and buying another. In that process... The real estate agents do everything they can to keep the buyer and the seller apart. They act as the go-between. They do the communicating when there is negotiation going on. The idea is to keep the transaction from becoming personal. And for the most part, it makes sense. Who would want to know what prospective buyers really think about your decor or your style or how clean or dirty your house is? I have a ring doorbell. You know what those are? The audio and video. So I actually have caught some snippets of conversation as prospective buyers have come in and out of our house when we weren't there. It wasn't enjoyable to hear a prospective buyer, for example, a kind of sneer when he heard how old the roof is. But the other side of it is this. The system, like many systems in our world, is set up to be adversarial. One party always wants the other party to concede something. The other party wants the first party to stop being so picky and demanding. If your real estate agent is a skillful communicator, then maybe the feeling of being in competition diminishes somewhat as the focus is kept on getting the deal done. But nevertheless, it's still painted as a win-lose situation, competition rather than interdependence. I've wondered a couple times if the people who want to buy my house actually knew something about me and how much the house has meant to me and to my family and why we did some things to improve it and not others and what plans and dreams I still had for it, what my next thing would be, whether that would change anything about the tone of the transaction. What if they knew that I'd be happy to answer any questions in the future they might have about living at the lake, about the neighborhood, about the particular geography or the culture of that place? What if we were linked by the transaction rather than separated by it? Would the whole thing feel different? Would we all see ourselves as connected in a way that is mutually beneficial? Now is that a radical idea? A transformative idea? Or is it silliness? Because that's not the way the world works. Where there's ownership and money and bank loans and agents involved. There's no interdependence. There's only competition. But let's recognize this, if we don't have the opportunity to connect, to fashion something that is kind and good and mutually beneficial, how do we change the world? How are we changed? How is love moved from the sideline to the center? I think the good news of connection and forgiveness, of grace and hope, of kindness and love, holds within it the power of transformation. We can be changed for the better. We can be agents of change for the better. For this is the way of Jesus the dazzling way of Jesus. Amen.